Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. So we're going to start a new series today. And um, one of the things I enjoy doing, uh, it's just one of my uh, side issue fun activities, is being a tour guide. I enjoy being a tour guide. I have, on a number of occasions, people have stopped into the church and said, hey, you know, I've never been here before, or uh, lots of times people say, boy, I haven't been here in decades. So we take a tour. I enjoy taking tours of the church. I've done tours of the town of Ripman with people, and uh, really enjoy doing that. <clears throat> My other places I like to do is like Winona Lake, Indiana, where Grace College and Grace Seminary are. Love being there and going around and showing that off. And then uh, I even done um, tours in Philadelphia for people, and some of you have been on those. And I have a uh, half-day historic tour I like to do there. So I love that kind of stuff. So today, as we start this particular series, I want to be your tour guide. So I'm hoping that you have comfortable footwear and you may want to stretch, especially your calf muscles. We're not going to do a lot of walking. You're actually going to be standing on a ladder looking in a window is what you're going to be doing. So um, hopefully you don't cramp up or any of that kind of stuff. <clears throat> the night before uh, Jesus was crucified was uh, a mixture of emotion and a lot of discomfort. So to set that stage, I rigged it so that when Dwayne was done reading scripture, things would go wrong, just so that you guys felt uncomfortable today. And so uh, I think that worked. We're going to be looking mostly at uh, John chapter 13 and 14, and there's reasons why. <clears throat> the Gospels and the life of Jesus are recorded in the four Gospels, and without going into a lot of detail, uh, I will tell you that Matthew wrote his gospel as an eyewitness. <clears throat> he was there for mu much of the time, and he had a certain slant on what he was trying to do as geared toward the Jewish people uh, and the kingship of Christ. Mark wrote his, and might have been, some people think Mark's might have been the earliest of the four gospels written. I don't know that for sure, but that's what some people say. And we believe that most of his information, Mark wasn't there. He, he wasn't a part of that. We believe most of his information came from Peter. And Peter informed him of what was going on, and Mark just happened to write it out. <clears throat> Luke, uh, who was a medical doctor and probably a little bit smarter than the average bear, um, he researched his stuff diligently. And compiled a lot of information, a lot of facts, and, and he wrote his gospel. John, uh, who is the one I really, really enjoy, I, I just love John, and um, he's my favorite person other than Jesus in the Bible, and John wrote his later than the others, and I think, I can't prove this anywhere, but I think John wrote what he wrote to fill in the gaps. I think that uh, he wrote later on, <clears throat> and people probably said to him, hey, 
you know, we've heard so much about Jesus. What, was, what brought him on the scene? What was the first thing that Jesus did that made him in a public eye? And John's the one who said, oh, it was that wedding at Cana. And then tells about the um, miracle that he did there. Or maybe somebody said, we've heard a lot about Nicodemus. What, what's that all about? And John tells us in chapter 3 about Nicodemus coming to Jesus and some of the things. Or the lady at the well, the Samaritan woman. All these stories, you can go all the way through Lazarus. There's so many things that John tells us that nobody else tells us. And I think he's just telling us after a while and saying, oh, well, here's why we do this. Here's the story behind that. And... Uh, I just, I love his, his writing. I think he's really, really good. So here we go. We want to talk about the destiny of the cross and, and we want to build this up. So today we're going to talk about the night before um, Jesus was crucified. And we're going to take parts of it until we finish up on Easter morning when we're able to talk about uh, the resurrection. <clears throat> There's, I um, want to think about the preparation for the, uh, what we call the Lord's Supper, uh, that last supper the night before. Uh, and you can see, I, I have a lot of the references recorded in here for you in the bulletin so that you can, I'm assuming you either are familiar with it or that you will say, oh, I got to read that later and see. So I want you to do that because we're not going to be able to turn to everything but you can see in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, as it talks about how uh, it came that they happened to go to this place to have this dinner. It's in Jerusalem. And Jesus tells them that when you go into the city uh, to his disciples, when you go into the city, you're going to see a guy who's carrying a water jar, jar. And when you see him, follow him and go home with him. Now, to you and I, that sounds a little bit strange. If I pulled in my driveway and some stranger followed me and came into the house and said, oh, we're going to use your family room for a bunch of my friends who you don't know, and uh, we're just going to have a big party there. That's fine with you, isn't it? I, I probably would politely ask, who are you? And then very impolitely kick them out, most likely. I, I don't think it's exactly that way. We don't know what was prepped leading up to that. Um, but it was unusual, I would say, for a man to be carrying a water jar. If he had a bottle of Pepsi, everybody would have done that. But, um, but if carrying a water jar in that day, that was not something that uh, the men would have normally have done. So it was a little bit of a unique thing. And then he goes into the home, and, and they follow him in, and they go in and they tell the guy, the teacher needs that room upstairs. Uh, for the preparation for the Passover. And then I want to question, how much did that host know about this, that it was coming? Um, maybe he had some contacts with either Jesus or his disciples, and sometime in the past might have said, oh, yeah, anytime you're in town, I got a neat room. You guys can camp out there, do whatever you want to do. Maybe that's happened. Or maybe even um, as some of the ones were looking around and saying, we got we to prepare for this, maybe he was one of the options and was told, oh, yeah, we like that. Maybe we'll, we'll let you know. Um, maybe, I don't know. Or maybe it was just a God thing. And that's very possible, too, that God just 
placed it on this guy's heart that when somebody comes, you say yes to them. And that would have been all okay, no matter what happened. But actually then what happens is they, the disciples, found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. They found the guy with the water jar. He led him to the house. They went into the house and, uh, and invited themselves. And the host said, no problem. You go ahead and do that. Haley's Bible handbook says that for 14 centuries leading up to this, the Passover took place. And uh, it was pointing forward to the sacrificial lamb that God had assigned his Messiah to be. Jesus ate a Passover and then he substituted in place of that his own supper. And then he himself becomes the lamb. So as the next day when Jesus is on the cross dying for your sins, my sins, the sins of everyone in the world, over at the temple, a quarter million lambs are being sacrificed on behalf of the Jewish people to, uh, to pay for their atonement as well. So let's stay on the night before though. So there's a meal, a memorial supper, and that's where we come to John chapter 13. And the reason I'm picking John 13 is because again, I believe that John wrote that later, filling in the gaps and telling them why. Um, they probably, and we know that um, the Lord's Supper, the, the love feast, the uh, bread in the cup, and the washing of feet had been observed for hundreds of years by the early church. Um, and so I'm sure that after three or four decades, there were probably some new in the crowd that said to John, hey, we do this all the time, but where did this come from? Why? I don't see that in Mark's or, or, uh, or at least just a portion of it in Matthew's and, and Luke's. So John is filling details. Some of the things you need to know, they would have been reclining around a table. The table probably... Uh, sat maybe, I'm guessing, 10 or 12 inches off the floor. It was, it was a low-lying table, and, uh, and they would lie on their left side and be facing toward the right, and that way they could lay there and eat with their right hands and, and do that. And everybody would be around. Their feet would be away from the table, which is probably good news. <clears throat> and um, so anyhow, that's, that's how they were reclining. And John is, is chosen by Jesus to be the one closest to him um, in this place of honor. And it's clear that, you know, Scripture tells us that John was uh, loved by Jesus more than some. And, uh, and that was a good thing. He had to have matured a lot during the discipleship program, spending the three years with Christ. Uh, early on, we see him really... Um, um, kind of manipulating things, trying to get into a special place. Uh, his mother tries to bargain for him and his brother to have place of honor. When uh, One time when they were passing through Samaria and they were not welcomed by the Samaritans, John and James said, you know, we can call down thunder and lightning and, and destroy this country. We'd love to do that to the Samaritans. Is that okay by you, Jesus? And... Um, of course, Christ corrected that and helped them. This guy is really being uh, chiseled off 
on his rough edges and becoming molded into a person that Christ really wanted him to be. So we come into the, what happens here in John 13, and I'm not going to read everything um, from this to you, but this Lord's Supper comes, and during the, the meal, while they're eating, Jesus gets up, and he goes and takes a basin, fills it full of water, and he goes around and washes their feet. Now that is really, really unusual for a number of reasons. One is, it's tradition, everybody provides a basin of water at the door, um, and usually a servant as well, that is there so that when you walk in, you, they wore sandals all the time. It's a very, very sandy land and, and a lot of dust and dirt. And so you may have had a shower and you go there, but your feet are messy. And so at the door, you always have that custom there. Not to provide that would be extremely insulting to your guests. So that happened. That happened there. But this is different. Jesus gets up and he goes around and he washes feet. And then he sits down and asks him, do you know what I'm doing? And they had the conversation back and forth. And Peter was the one who said, there's absolutely no way I'm going to let you do that to me. Um, now, Jesus would have already washed a few others, and we don't know where Peter was in the process. But um, he's saying, no, I'm not going to allow that. And then he has that debate with Jesus. And, um, and he says, you have to do this, or else you will not have fellowship with me. And then Peter says, okay, well then, just wash all of me. You know, just dump the whole basin on me and clean me up. This be great. And Jesus reminds them, no, you're, you're referring to salvation, and you've already had that. That's the bath. This is daily cleansing of fellowship, because as you walk the streets of this world, you're contaminated, and you've experienced sin. So we need to clean that off so that you and I can have fellowship together, one with the other. In our group, um, Karis Church, Grace Brethren Churches, we're not the only ones who do all this stuff. Uh, there are millions of people every year around the world that observe um, communion in that form. Let me tell you, we call it an ordinance. And I've been trying to figure out, I just don't have the right materials, I guess. And I didn't want to go crazy into the internet on this. Some groups have things they call sacraments. And then there's some that are ordinances. And I was trying to figure out what makes a sacrament different from an ordinance because so many times they're, they're the same things listed and so why do we use two different words for it and the only things that I can figure out is that um, some have referenced the fact that sacraments are a little bit more liturgical and um, maybe just um, something a church do. Some of the things that are listed as sacraments that I would not necessarily say is a command to, to replicate uh, is things like the Holy Kiss. Um, some groups have marriage as a sacrament. Um, some of the things are like the anointing of the sick, although we honor that here and we practice that, but um, I wouldn't elevate it to that level. Um, and laying on of hands and some other things like that. Dr. Herman Hoyt had written um, a paper once d defining what ordinances are. And so here's some of the things that he says are required that uh, these are the things that tell us what Jesus wants us to do, basically. And so the first point would be there's a special time for the institution of a form of an ordinance. 
I'm thinking here about communion, baptism. Uh, in baptism, uh, it was the night before Jesus, or very close to when Jesus was going to return to heaven, in Matthew 28, when he gave the, the direction on baptism. And here in John 13, it's the night before his crucifixion. Uh, this is probably even more important, number two, and that is the sovereign authorization of the form as an ordinance. In Matthew 28, Jesus starts off by saying, all authority is given to me. That makes me feel like, uh-oh, something's coming up here. There's something really, really important because he doesn't say this all the time. So my ears perk up a little bit and say, I need to listen to this and probably I need to obey it. Here in John chapter 13, verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So once again, he's recognizing the authority there. Um, the third thing would be the, the symbolical meaning in the form. So... I like to describe baptism and communion as spiritual dramas. We're, we're dramatizing something, and there's a physical action that's going to take place that we're acting out. But the fourth thing is that also has um, a spiritual reality symbolized um, by it. So we're acting out something that is a physical drama but it has a deeper spiritual meaning behind it. For instance, in baptism, we immerse somebody in water, and it reminds us that that person has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and there's a cleansing in it, and there's also um, an identification. It doesn't happen when we do it. Um, you may be surprised to know that Ritman water is not necessarily holy. <laughs> Uh, in fact, I drink it. Sometimes the water here in the church doesn't even smell good. And, um, and it doesn't always, we don't always have cleanest water in the baptistry. But um, it, it symbolizes new life, a, a cleansing that has happened in the past, and, and that we're just symbolizing it, acting it out, portraying it. It talks about an identification with the body of Christ, universal with him. Also, we use it to identify with the local body as well. And, and the scripture tells us that, that we immerse people uh, in that, baptizing them. And we do it in the name of the Father, and we do it in the name of the Son, and we do it in the name of the Holy Spirit, because we believe in a triune God. That's what separates us from Judaism, Mormonism, any other ism um, that does baptism. Same thing with the uh, communion service. All the segments of that have significance. We're acting out, but they're spiritual realities. And, um, and then uh, another thing that it would ask us to do, I think if I can get there it is, is that there's a specific and clear command telling us that we need to uh, continue this and practice this. So what's going on in the upper room is not a traditional act of a host. It's, that, that's not normal, what was going on here. is something different and unique. Um, <clears throat> and it's not simply an act of humility or simply an act of servanthood because Jesus said that intimate fellowship with me on a daily basis is required for this, what it's picturing. Um, so there had to be a whole lot more.
<clears throat> I'm going to skip a lot of stuff here. But here's what Jesus goes on to tell us. Um, oh, that just tells you that it's Herman Hoyt. Um, so later in verse 14, he says, uh, verse 17, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Verse 14 is where he tells you that... Um, if I washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. That's the New International Version translation that says should. The uh, King James and the New American Standard both have the word ought. To, and I really prefer the word ought because the Greek word here, I wish we could spend an hour on this, is the word aphila. And it literally means to owe under an obligation or there's a debtor to someone under an obligation. And it's used by the Apostle Paul in Philemon, verse 18. If you remember, Onesimus was a slave that ran away from Philemon, cost Philemon money, uh, he had loss because of Onesimus. But Onesimus gets saved, hooks up with Paul, comes back, Paul writes a letter saying, hey, you gotta receive this guy, because he's not just a slave now, he's also a brother in Christ. And then Paul says, and if he owes you anything, I am obligated to pay that on his behalf. And I think Paul felt a very, very strong obligation there. Jesus told us that if you do these things, you're blessed if you do that. Well, the conversation goes on even further after this. And, and we come up in, um, in John and his first 18, I believe, where he says, He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This is now introducing another uncomfortable subject, and that is that there's going to be a betrayer. Somebody is going to um, go against Jesus. Another phrase that he used in verse 21 says that, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Can you imagine this, the tension that's there? Um, we didn't do this. I was going to, I considered putting up uh, Leonardo da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper because he does a great job of um, portraying the confusion. Uh, if you ever look at it, uh, the disciples are all, they're grouped in groups of three. They're all kind of huddled together, wondering, is it you, is it you, is it me? Who, who's this person who's gonna betray? There's a lot of uh, concern and confusion there. Judas is off on the one end uh, in the picture. By the way, they have them like they're sitting in chair. It's not a a true replica of what happened, what was going on there. But uh, Judas is off in one seg segment and he's clinging to the, uh, to the money bag that he was in control of as the treasure. And so they're all wondering, who is it? Who's the, who's the guilty party that's gonna betray Jesus? And I'm sure many of them are saying, it's not me, I hope. I hope I'm not the one. Uh, I think I would have questioned that myself as well. So Peter turns to John and says, hey, John, you're sitting next to Jesus. Why don't you ask him who's it going to be? Who's the guy who's going to betray? And here's what Jesus says in return in verse 26. He said, it's the one to whom that I'm going to give this piece of bread to when I dipped it and in the dish. And so he does that. Now, I have read 
that in their culture, sometimes when you had guests that were at your home, and if there was somebody who you had a special friendship, a real love for, and a, and a brotherly kind of love, that you would sometimes dip the bread into the dip and then give it to them. Sort of like, hey, you're, you're really a special friend. Here's something you need to try. And so in a sense, Jesus is communicating, even though he knows Judas and what he's gonna do, it's like, you know what, Judas, I gave you every chance. I love you and you had every opportunity and yet you still have failed me. So the one that was dipped in was given to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. There's absolutely no mistaking who this is. And he's gonna betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Not a whole lot to value a life. So Judas gets up and he leaves. I like the King James. I, I know I heard, and, and uh, Dwayne did a great job reading scripture, but it's kind of fun when, in the King James, when Jesus said to Judas, what thou doest, doest quickly. I just like that. That's just a neat ring to it. Um, Judas is going to go and betray. He's, he's going to be a hypocrite. And their confusion among the others even gets more so. And they're and it's understandable because, for one, they're anticipating a Messiah who's going to come and rule the world. They think in terms of victory and overthrow. They're not thinking that this guy's going to be put to death. Although the scripture, and, and even to this day, the Jewish people sometimes accept two Messiahs. Uh, if they don't accept Jesus, they accept two Messiahs, one that's going to be victorious and one who's going to suffer. And um, the scriptures taught about a suffering Messiah. Most of us look at Isaiah 53 for that. Then they start looking at Judas and they think, well, he's the most trusted among us. He's the treasurer of our group. We allow him to do all the, the finances and carry all of our responsibilities. It can't be Judas. And so they're thinking about Judas. Well, why is he getting up and leaving? He's probably going to go pay some alms somewhere, or maybe he's going to take care of the bill for the dinner we just have. What is he um, going to do here? Well, it says that a dispute, Luke tells us, that a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus is talking about the one who's going to betray him, and they start arguing uh, among themselves as to who is the greatest of these. And I'm not sure how that went, but we've seen that happen with them before, and, uh, and their conclusions have not been very brilliant at times. This whole scene of what's going on, um, Chuck Swindoll said uh, this about it. He said there's two reasons why Christ chose the activity, and that is the, the love feast, the communion uh, activity. One is because uh, their hearts are proud, and the other is because their feet were dirty. And that meant a whole lot more than just physically. They um, spiritually were struggling. They had sin in their lives, and they were fellowship, but the pride was a real issue for them. Jesus comes down to verse 34 and 35 and says to them, A new command I give you, to love one another, as I have loved you, 
so that you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Love and the command to love was all through scripture. You can find it in the Old Testament all over the place. It's not new that we love somebody. What was new and the distinction about this love is that it was unconditional. It was unselfish and it was unlimited. Some of you are just thinking, uh oh, that must be in the outline. So maybe I better say that again. It was unconditional, unselfish, and unlimited. That's what Jesus was asking them to do that was totally different than what they had experienced before. Then something really unique that's powerful, and I, and I love this section. The next thing that happens is Jesus turns his attention to Peter. Now here's what Luke recorded about it. Um, Luke's I think I'm on. Is that right? Okay. Um, Peter told, Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now that statement that Jesus gave there is going to actually cover a long time period in the future. Because Satan being sifted is going to happen the next day. But Satan strengthening his brothers is going to, I mean, Peter being sifted and Peter um, strengthening his brothers is going to happen for years to come in the near future here. So Jesus is informing Peter, and as you know from Scripture uh, and the end of John 13, that he tells Peter that you are going to deny me three times. And you saw Peter's words, Peter saying, there's no way, I will go to the death with you. I will die with you, Jesus. And Jesus said, I don't think so. You're going to deny me three times. What I really love, and I know a lot of you have heard me say this before, but I think it's just absolutely amazing that when you end chapter 13 and then you go into the beginning of chapter 14, and, and you know when John wrote this, there was no chapter divisions or verses or anything like that. He just wrote. And it goes like this, where Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times, but do not let your heart be troubled. Now, by the way, the first time in verse one of chapter 14, when he says the word you, this is where the English language is such a mess. It's actually a singular you in there. So he says, do not let, don't you let your heart be troubled, Peter. Yeah, you're gonna deny me, but don't, don't let that bother you because, and then he goes on to promise, and, and you know the passage, it's one of the most popular ones, that I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm, I'm gonna prepare rooms or mansions, some say, and, uh, and I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. You just think about how horrendous a failure that Peter experienced. 
Jesus needed him to take a stand for him. People were questioning him. Aren't you one of his disciples? He said, no way. Even the third time, he swears and curses and says, I don't know the guy. And, uh, which is interesting because they said, oh, we can tell by your speech, your dialect, that you're from Galilee. You're with him. And then he uses his speech to separate himself from Jesus. And, I mean, just the most horrendous failure that anybody could ever do. And in the next breath, Jesus offers complete forgiveness. Absolute forgiveness of even one who did that. That is so powerful when we think about that even in our lives. Because we fail. We fail ourselves. We fail others we love. We fail Jesus a lot. And yet he offers absolute, complete forgiveness and it's powerful what he has for us. So the promise is very comforting. Everything uh, that seemed to be failing and falling apart all around him, the darkest hours even yet to come, but he said to them, you can trust me. You can, you can have faith in me. And as you believe in me, I have just treasures for you that you don't even understand. He says that I'm going to give you another comforter, a counselor who's going to come. Your fear is going to be overcome by the person of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus departs, the Holy Spirit's going to come and possess people and all the believers. And he's going to be the one who teaches them everything that they need to know, everything that they need to say, and he's going to bring lasting peace to them. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives, so do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. In the midst of all this chaos and confusion and, and fear, Jesus offers them peace. A peace that transcends anything that the world even understands. And, and that idea of peace, I mean, it's so hard to define that because it's so rich, what he's saying. But uh, one suggested that it just has everything that makes for our highest good. It's a conquest. It's everything that's great for us. Well, then uh, what happens next is um, they wrap it up and they sing a hymn and they go out to the Mount of Olives. And that's where Pastor Clark will pick up next week when he talks to us about what happens in the garden there. But I also wanted to just remind you of what was um, told by the prophet Isaiah, where he said, you will keep God, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because of trust in you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what issues you have in your life, when we stay steadfast, focused on Christ our Savior, that he can offer us a peace. Chuck Swindoll wrote a little conclusion thing on this. He said, what we need to do to anchor our soul is to, first of all, acknowledge Christ as Savior. Let him be the source of our strength. Second, every day, begin with prayer and claim his peace. Allow him to give us his peace and invite him to do that. And third would be, deal with those habits, one of which is pessimism. Uh, and he used the word by mooring ourselves. Notice the anchor and mooring yourself to the prophetic word. God's prophecy is what gets us through. It's the promises he has for us. This world is not 
all there is. He has so much more for us. And then devote ourselves to obedience. Christ suffered. He died. He paid the price for you and I. And in him and in him alone, we have the peace and the promise of what can lie ahead for us. The Holy Spirit will protect us and bring us safely to where he wants us to be. Would you join me in prayer, please? And Lord, we do thank you today for just the gift of life that you've given to us and the gift of eternal life that we can have and experience through our dear Savior, Jesus. Lord, we face so many struggles as well, maybe not as intense as what we've been talking about on the night before the crucifixion and even the day of, but we do face struggles and, and tension and, and difficulties. And a lot of times we don't even understand how to handle and deal with those. Lord, we just are so grateful for the gift of the Spirit of God who gives us peace in the midst of all of our struggles. Thank you for the promise that you have prepared a place for us so that someday forever we will be with you. What a wonderful, wonderful plan you have for us. God, help us to anchor our souls with you. Help us to uh, deal with those things that we need to deal with. Help us to experience the peace that only you can give. Help us be obedient to you and, and all that you've asked us to do. And we will give you honor and thanks and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.